Hey guys, if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please know that help is available. Call our Trusted Addiction Treatment Helpline now at 833-999-1877. Addiction specialists are available to offer support 24-7. More information can be found on this week's episode description on your podcast app. Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Hey, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate, and today I have Brian on the show. What's your last initial? H. Brian H. Yes. All right. From Philly. That's right. From North Philly? That's right. North Philly, born and raised. Like uh, Will Smith? Well, no, yeah, but he's from West Philly. Okay. But yes, I am born and raised in North. You know what? Is that how the song goes? Is it West Philly? In West Philadelphia, you're born and raised. Okay, okay. I'm from a different part of town. Okay. It's a little bit more rough in North Philly. Oh, North Philly is rougher than West Philly. Yes, it is. Debatably. Now, Debatably. I have some people yeah, from West Philly yeah, saying, we'll say saying uh, of course. You know, I read his book, and it's one of my favorite books. Will Smith? Will, yeah, he has a book called Will by Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Man, it's incredible. Yeah, I saw a documentary of him uh, writing the book and him doing reads around the table oh, really? with his family and stuff oh, like wow. that. It was pretty interesting. He broke down and cried when he was reading some of those chapters. So I've read a lot of, like, celebrity books or whatever, and a lot of times it's real surface level, like— it's just like, yeah, you know, I was struggling and now I'm doing good and then whatever. But, like, it doesn't get, like, the nitty-gritty. Mm-hmm. Man, there are some parts of his book where you're just like, wow. Like, yeah. he really uncovers, like, the most vulnerable parts about him. He talks about being wrong a lot of times. The All the shit with his family growing up. Like, mm-hmm. it's a real true autobiography. Yeah, you know? I, I remember some parts about it. About his father that he talked about. Yeah, yeah. And because, his relationship with yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the book, he talks about how, like, because his father was, you know, a drunk, abusive alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And he talks about he had this thought, like, when he was helping him up the steps, like, if I push him off these steps wow. and kill him right now, will anyone ever know? Wow. Because, you know, as a kid, you want to get revenge and you talk about revenge, your, you know, your whole life. But, like, they had mended their relationships. It was a quick thought. But, yeah, it was pretty interesting. He put that in the book just to, you know, he didn't have to. Yeah. Let's get to uh, how it all started. Well, I'm from Philly. I'm from North Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I actually am an uptown, downtown kid. What I mean by that is that my mother, she raised me, well, she moved us up to uh, Mount Airy, mm-hmm. West Oak Lane, when I was still a, a small child. And my grandmother and all my cousins, they still lived in North Philadelphia. So I went to school uptown, mm-hmm. uh, Mount Airy, and I went to Catholic school. I went to private school. And then I eventually wound up in public school and I started acting up. But I always would go back down in the city. You grew up with a two-parent household? Nah, just my uh, mother raised me by herself. Okay. So it was basically my mother raised me with the help of my grandma. Okay. Yeah, my my father wasn't around. He had issues with uh, abuse and addiction. My mother, she chose not to, you know, live with that. You know, she said that. Uh, he would put her, his hands on her, mm-hmm. and she decided not to stay in that kind of relationship. So they got a divorce um, soon after I was born and soon after they were married. 
they were already divorced. Mm-hmm. My mom, she's a real go-getter. She moved us out of the city and got us a house in a good neighborhood of Mount Airy, which was uptown. Mm-hmm. Now, were you in contact with your father growing up? Nah, I'm an abandoned child. Gotcha. Yeah, I grew up um, comparing myself to my friends who had mm-hmm. mothers and fathers and uh, always wanting to have a dad. You know, if my mom had a boyfriend, I would kind of cling to those guys. Well, not cling to them, but look up to them. And mm-hmm. maybe it was one guy named uh, Joe who was a white man that my mother had a relationship with. And I kind of consider him my dad because he was so kind to my mother and mm-hmm. kind to me and took me to Disney World and mm-hmm. like Jamaica and Puerto Rico when I was just a child, you mm-hmm. know. And I really looked at him like a father figure. I always wanted that kind of male role model. For me, he um, fit the bill for the time that him and my mother was together. Mm. Where did things go left? Well, throughout my whole life, I've had uh, anger issues. I found myself always fighting in school fighting on the block. I think it stemmed from me having abandonment issues. Mm-hmm. It's a culture within the black community. Um, if you're light-skinned, you're soft. And if you're dark-skinned, you're tough. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with, you know, guys thinking I was a pussy. I Were you big growing up? Because you're kind of, you're pretty big now. I was always about the same size. Okay. Um, I was always about an 85 percentile height, mm-hmm. you know, type of person. I never was a short guy. But it just was this kind of thing in the neighborhood where light skin was soft. Yeah, Yeah. if you're a light skin guy, you're soft. And um, I just wasn't going for that. Mm -hmm. You know, I found myself defending myself from uh, being bullied or even being jumped. Because, like you just asked me, was I always the same size I was? So a lot of times, guys didn't want to fight me one on one. Mm -hmm. So it would be two, three guys fighting me. Sometimes I would get the better of them, and sometimes I would just get my ass whooped and have to go home. Mm-hmm. But that's how I grew up. And I accepted my ass whoopings, you know. My mother never would even know I was in a fight. Yeah, I didn't go home as like, Mom, and cry, I got yeah. beat up or whatever like that. I just would ever either get my ass whooped mm-hmm. or I would whoop some ass. And my mom would be like, how was your day? It was cool, Mom. Just mm-hmm. another day. But out of that anger i never knew where to put that anger and i really didn't know where that anger came from until i got into recovery Mm -hmm. me wanting to be accepted and having those abandonment issues made me follow the crowd of the older guys and the guys that was hustling Mm -hmm. and that's where it sort of went left for me because in north philadelphia where my grandmother lived see i'm 51 years old So during my teenage years was the 80s. So around 85, 86, 87, 88, you know, I'm 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. I think at 88, I was like 15, 16 years old, 17, something like that. Mm -hmm. Hustling was where it was at. When I grew up, I wanted to be a drug dealer. That was one of my goals and ambitions. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you want to be, Brian? I want to be a drug dealer. Looking back as a grown man, that's pretty dangerous and stupid, but as a child, looking at the guys with the brand new Mercedes Benz and mm-hmm. BMWs and the gold chains and the Gucci sneakers and the Sergio Ticini sweatsuits and the fly girls with the big earrings. You know, I wanted to be like that because mm-hmm. they were the popular people. They always had money. If you needed some money, you can always go to one of those guys if you were a cool guy mm-hmm. and they would slide you a couple of dollars. That's kind of where it went left for me. Because I found myself hanging with those guys, and I became one of the cool young boys. Mm-hmm. Young boys is a term we use yeah. in Philly. 
I wound up being one of the cool young bulls, and I could ride around with the dope boys in their cars while they was doing pickups or drop-offs. Mm-hmm. I can remember me being like 14, 15 years old, and they used to pass me coke, and I would, I'd be snorting it right there with them, and I would feel cool mm-hmm. because here I am, 15 years old, with my, my neighbor. He's, you know, 21 you know, he's still a young man yeah. himself, but I'm 14 with the 21 year old and his brand new BMW with the BBS rims and the MCM interior mm-hmm. and the MCM rag top. And I'm feeling like the man. I would imagine passing, it's just like paid in full. Just like paid in full. <laughs> just like paid in full. And he's like, yo, B. And he's passing off stuff and people putting mm-hmm. money in the car. And they're like, yo, what's up, B? And I'm the, I'm the young boy to call it, mm-hmm. yo, what's up? And he passed me the powder and I'm like, and I'm feeling like the shit. You know, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, that's where it start going. Was left. powder really like the thing? Like, were you drinking and smoking already or were you not really into drinking and smoking? I jumped in head first. Into powder? I was in the drinking, I was uh, in the smoking, mm-hmm. and I was in the snorting. Yeah. But it, it officially started off drinking. My background is music. So I have a music background. Mm-hmm. And um, I was in a rap group when I was a, a young teenager. Mm-hmm. All the way until adulthood, but I, I'll get into that. Yeah. We had this group up in Mount Airy called Versatile, where we would rap and sing and dance. And we used to do parties, block parties, house parties. At those parties, we would get alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, either the parents were like, hey, you guys want a beer? Even though we was teenagers, we were the DJs. We were the entertainment. My boy Eric would be cutting the records. I'd be on the microphone rapping. My boy Chuck would be on the beat machine. And they would offer us alcohol. So it started from just drinking, it progressed to marijuana, and then from there, it progressed to cocaine. What happens like, you know, as like a young adult? As a young adult, I become a semi-successful drug dealer. I always got a lot of cocaine around or a lot of marijuana. And this was without the knowledge of my mother, too. Mm. I didn't have the kind of mom that was cool with that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I would have to hide my money. I would have to hide the drugs. I would have to hide being high. Mm-hmm. I became a semi-successful drug dealer as a young adult, not as a teenager. Mm-hmm. As a teenager, I was more a user and a hang around. So I would hang around the dope boys and hang around my older friends as they were selling drugs. Because that's another thing. Mm-hmm. In Mount Airy, none of my friends were drug dealers. But when I went down North Philly, mostly all my friends were drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And I would be on the corners with them while they selling crack. And they would be drinking 40s of old English, snorting coke, <laughs> selling crack, listening to rap music. Mm-hmm. And I would be coming down for the weekend, hanging with them on the corner. It was exciting. <laughs> yeah. You know? And um, What kind of music was, was popping off back then? Public Enemy. Okay. Eric B. Rakim. Mm-hmm. We used to even listen to some of this Florida music. Really? Uh, yeah. Like uh, what? Trick Daddy? That wasn't even around no, yet. No, not Trick that Daddy. Was the booty music. Uh, uh, Uncle Luke. Uncle Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Uncle Luke was, some of that Uncle Luke was mm-hmm. popping. Yeah, uh, LL Cool J, mm-hmm. things like that, you know? That's the music that was popping in Philly. Schoolie D, a Philadelphia artist. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of rap music we was listening to. It was still the golden age of rap music, mm-hmm. you know? Like I say, Public Enemy and that, that kind of thing. It was exciting. It was exciting because rap music was brand new. It had just came out like mm-hmm. 80. 182. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was creating itself in the late 70s, but yeah. by the time the 80s had uh-huh. jumped, it was like a It was a thing. Genre. Yeah. So rap music is brand new, and that's my era. I'm coming up. This is my. This is the music that we identify with. Mm-hmm. Drug dealing, crack, and cocaine is brand new. Mm-hmm. Well, at least the crack was. That was brand new. Yeah. And the way that money was coming in, I mean, my friends were 
15 years old, the older dope guys would give them $1,000 worth of drugs to sell, mm -hmm. right? So we would be sitting around. We got, they had yeah. $1,000 in a bag worth of cocaine, right? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> we used to open up every bag and take a little a tube little out of every bag yeah. and tape it back up. So we'd be out there skied up, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm watching that. That was the excitement of that during the weekend. And then I would go up Mount Airy and so I'd tell my So you had that double friends, life. I had a double life. You know, I think most drug addicts have that in them where, where they're able to turn it off and turn it on. And they have like these two sides of them that, that they need to battle. I definitely had that two double side. Um, I go uptown. I tell my friends up Mount Airy the things that I was doing. Uh, how we was living, mm -hmm. you know, because up Mount Area, all we was doing, we might smoke a joint, <laughs> you know, or drink a little beer. Yeah. Um, but down North Fully, they snoring cocaine. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I, I put in this um, book that I'm writing now was when I heard this term, cocaine and champagne, that seemed like the flyest thing that my 15, 16-year-old mm -hmm. brain was like, cocaine and champagne. You know, the guy who said it had a, a fly car and gold chain on and you know, it's the coke's just passing around. I'm like, damn, that's that's some fly shit. Mm -hmm. Cocaine and champagne. So I go up Mount Air and I'm like, yo, cocaine and champagne. They're like, what you talking about, B? Yo, down North Philly, man, they snort coke. They getting money. <laughs> this is what's going on. This and then the other, which made me a little bit popular in, in uptown because I'm bringing a different culture. But mm -hmm. it was to my demise. You know, yeah, and I culture. think um, like well, like when I was doing coke, I think that when I started doing it and telling people about it. It was instantly people looking down like, nah, bro. Like a lot of people didn't think it was cool. Mm -hmm. Where I think as like prior when it first started coming out in the 80s, it was like a hip, classy drug. But when I was doing it, mm -hmm. people were like, nah, bro, you can't be doing powder. Like it was like looked down upon, you know. But yeah. when it first came out, yeah, that's how it was marketed. Like a rich Wall Street, disco, whatever. When I was coming up, the older dudes used to have cocaine around their neck and a chain and a little bottle. Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. I didn't walk around with cocaine around your neck. And <laughs> a bottle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, T-shirts, like, they would take the um the Coca-Cola shirts uh -huh. and they would redesign it and they would say, Coke is it. But mm -hmm. then they would have a spoon with some cocaine on, yeah. on the shirt. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was crazy in the 80s, man. That's when I was introduced to cocaine and marijuana. But like what you were saying, like, what about as, as an adult? How was I as an adult? When I got to my 20s, I was in another rap group called 100X. I had a record contract with a football player named uh, Blair Thomas, who played for the Jets, was uh, drafted out of Penn State. And around the time, he had about 18 million. As he got older... He uh, backed up Emmett Smith as a running back. Mm -hmm. We made really good music, and we were like a local hit. After that, was able to start touring overseas around the world with um, a guy named Greg Osby. That's crazy. Um, doing jazz hip hop music, because I'm from Philadelphia, and as you know, the roots are from Philadelphia, and they do the the hip hop with a band type of thing. And I was doing the same thing over here with Greg Osby, who was signed to Blue Note Records, and my group 100X actually produced his uh, album. 3D lifestyle. So I was able to tour off of that with um, groups like The Roots and Diggable Planets and Tito Puente and all these jazz mm -hmm. acts and R&B acts. And, you know, the money's flowing. And at the time, I have a Susquehanna Avenue on lock in North Philadelphia selling pounds of marijuana. As that's progressing, my money's progressing. My ego's also progressing. My mm -hmm. ego's also growing. And as the music is getting bigger and bigger, it's a basketball player from North Philadelphia, also by the name of Rashid Wallace. 
might get a record contract with Rashi Wallace when he signed his first deal for $80 million. Hmm. And so I'm on top of the world. My ego's out of control. I'm snorting coke like a motherfucker. Um, I'm drinking and drugging, heavy. You really can't tell me nothing at that time. You know, my ego is in the driver's seat. And if anybody told me to slow down, like you said, your friends would look mm -hmm. at you down. I didn't have those kind of people around me. You know, if you was around me, you was either doing what I was doing and encouraging that behavior, you know, because for me, it was my way. It was my way or the highway because I'm making good money. I'm on TV. I'm on BET. I'm on MTV. What's your relationship with your mom like? At this time, my relationship with my mother is real shaky. As I was getting more into the street life, my mom was like, she was getting on my back, heavy, mm -hmm. like getting on my back, getting on my back, getting on my back to the point where I just left. And I just totally went down North Philly. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't live with my grandmother because in my mom's house, she just wasn't having it. But I would not listen to her. I was going to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to keep on hearing her getting on my nerves about me doing the wrong thing. So I left. So during that time, me and my mom's relationship wasn't good at all. Mm -hmm. I was able to get away with more at my grandmother's because she was older. And I could run circles and yeah. she would like sleeping or something like mm -hmm. that. And I could do my own thing. And then also down North Philly is where it was all popping at. That's the environment I chose to be in, which also led to why I even came to recovery needing help. Mm -hmm. So what goes on later on where things start to, you know, I guess, you know, spiral out of control? Things had already started to spiral out of control. I could put Band-Aids on it. I could hide it. I could mm -hmm. mask it. It'd be certain times where we had studio time, I wouldn't even show up because I'm somewhere getting high, mm -hmm. you know? And then I would come back with a crazy story about this, that, and the other, whatever. I would got with a girl or whatever like that. Mm -hmm. But I was missing the studio sessions because I was, I was somewhere getting high. The drugs I used to have around me, I started just doing all the damn drugs. Mm -hmm. So I ain't got nothing to sell, you know, because I didn't did them all. But I still had some money because I had rap money. So things were, were starting to, you know, unravel at that time you know, already. Because I kept my appearance up, it was hard for anybody to tell, you know, because I, I wore a mask where, you know, I would say I'm happy, I would look clean, I would look fresh, mm -hmm. but they didn't know that what I was doing all night long, you know. Around that time when I was rapping, it really started to unravel. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't make it to where I was supposed to make it in the rap game because I blew my career. You know, I was opening up shows for Biggie Smalls. Oh, I wow. was doing shows with Mob Deep. I was doing shows with Wu-Tang Clan, Ice Cube, all the people that was coming out in the 90s. Because mm -hmm. we're in the 90s now when I'm a young adult. All those guys that came out in the 90s, I was doing shows with them. You know, I was going up New York. I was doing the Source Awards. I did red carpet with Brandy interviewing mm -hmm. me oh, in 2001 crazy. on the wow. red carpet at the Source Awards. Oh, that's crazy. So, um, and at the same time, Jay-Z and Beanie Siegel, I'm on the red carpet. Destiny's Child is right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Brandy interviews Destiny's Child, da, da 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 The next group that comes up is my group. They interview me. The next group behind me was uh, Buster Rhymes or whatever like that. So I'm in the mix with all these guys. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was at the Source Awards, Trina sat in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, shit, that's the baddest bitch. <laughs> and she looked around and turned and looked at me. And she was like, oh, you crazy. I was like, yeah, baby. And uh, I'm just on some bullshit. But, uh -huh. you know, I was in the mix with all these guys, you know. But I blew my career because I chose to just do a lot of drugs instead of being focused on my craft, mm -hmm. you know? And that's one of the reasons why I didn't make it because I, I you know, I let these drugs and alcohol get the best of me because I was really, really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have friends who are uh, similar situation where, you know, 
they were like coming up with people that were really successful and they know they could have been one of them. And it's really hard for them to get clean because they just keep thinking about, you know, what they lost and trying to make up for that. And then like so much time goes on, they just feel like even if they got clean, you know, they've missed their boat, you know? I went through that. I went through that exact same thing. Mm -hmm. I went through this part where I had resentment about life and the things that I lost, like, damn, I, I should have been, you know. <laughs> I watch Wallow and Gilly mm -hmm. on TV right now. Shut up. And I see some of the things that they're doing. And my group, 100X, mm -hmm. had Philly on lock. It was um, Ram Squad, 100X, had North Philly, Philadelphia on lock. After our era was major figure, which was uh, Gilly, Wallow, and Dutch and Spade and, you know, App Live and Bump and all, and mm -hmm. Reese Rolex. So after my era was those guys. And, you know, I remember Gillian, well, not Wallow, because he was in jail at the time, but Gilly and the whole major figures coming down to where my boy Lee lived at, mm -hmm. who made the beats, to get their production. Because by the time they was trying to come out, our group was already solidified. We had a stamp in the city, and we had some of the hardest beats. So they would come to us to get their production. So I saw these guys come up. Mm -hmm. So when I see their success, it's like, damn, you know, sometimes I look at myself like, damn, B, you really fucked up, you know? Because in the neighborhood, they call me Staff. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't know me as Brian. Everybody call me Staff, Staff Monadex, Mustafa, uh -huh. Staffa. Um, wow. And I was like, damn, Staff, you really fucked up. Mm -hmm. I look at the roots on TV and I say, damn, Staff, you really fucked up. I used to do shows with Tariq, Black Thought, in New York City at Essos, you know? I've done shows with the roots in Switzerland. You know, I've done shows with Diggable Planets. See, Knowledge is one of my homies. I've done shows with him in Switzerland. We both did MTV together. And then I look at myself, and I'm in, in recovery mm -hmm. in a halfway house looking at these guys. And, you know, I have been brought to tears, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's okay. And you know what? Like, because there was a time where, like, I didn't even know about Gilly's rap career. I just found him on Instagram like years ago. Mm -hmm. But he was so funny on Instagram. Like, he's so funny, bro. Yeah. I remember I just love his stories. The way he just like, I don't know, he's just like so care. He's just funny, bro. And, uh, the you know, I didn't know that he used to rap. I just know that he's popular in Philly, right. you know. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, years later, bro, now they have like this crazy podcast. So it's like. You know, a lot of times people think that, like, their time is over. But, like, you know, I love Gillian Wallow and, like, their podcast. And I love how motivational, like, Wallow is. And, like, dude, this dude was in prison for, like, what, 20 years? Yeah. He's only been out for five. Yeah. You know, and he's amassed all this success. You know, it's really um, incredible what people can do in a short period of time. Even though they're later on in their life. They're in the third chapter of their life. Mm -hmm. You know? So a lot of times I think people get down on themselves because they didn't do something really incredible their first two chapters of their life, but man, sometimes people don't really plateau or hit their peak until, you know, their mid-40s. Yeah, I agree with that. I was reading something, and they said most millionaires who amass their wealth in their older age mm -hmm. have a, a advantage of keeping all their money, Yeah, while those who make it younger have most, a better yeah. advantage of losing it. Yeah, most people, like if you're a millionaire, like from 20 to 30, you're probably going to lose it. But if you amass it like at 40 to 50, you're probably going to keep it. I have a list in my phone of people who became successful after 40 mm -hmm. because I just, you know, want to remind myself that it's never too late to do something new because, you know, I have friends who are successful and I'll be talking about doing something. 
And they'll and, and a lot of them are like, I already have something. Lightning's not going to strike twice. Like they really don't want. They really don't think that they could do something else. Mm-hmm. Even though they're already successful, they really have this idea that like, I can't do that again. You know, this is all I'm going to worry about. And it's like a lot of people have that mentality. My time is already up. Yeah. And, and luckily, I don't stand in that. I don't mm-hmm. stand that. You know, I have had periods where I get upset or, or, you know, get down, but I don't stand that. What was the period like, like the last five years before you got clean and what led you to actually getting clean? All right. Well, the five years before getting clean... I was I was still hustling. I wasn't hustling drugs. I got into real estate, mm-hmm. right? I started having babies, you know, and I got into real estate. I was like, okay, after I start stop hustling and the rap career, I had my last little bit of money, a little bit of rap money, and I'm doing drugs and crazy. I don't even, I'm not doing good at all, right? Um, my, my wife has our first child. Then I get her pregnant again, and she's having a rough time at the house because we're not married and the mom's giving us stuff. And she's like, yo, we got to find an apartment. I found an apartment over top of a barbershop. I'm living there. It's roach infested. I've never lived like this before in my mm-hmm. life. I opened up the cabinets as roaches. I had all these clothes I had bought when I was rapping because Rashid Wallace used to give us uh, some money to go mm-hmm. shopping with. So I, I got all the clothes from the 90s. I got Rockaway. I got Coogee. Mm-hmm. I got a closet full of this stuff. When I opened up and I had, a, I had it in this little closet where it's plastic. You can zip it up in the closet. Mm-hmm. I would unzip the closet and come get my clothes. It'd be roaches. I had to shake out the clothes. It'd be roaches inside the plastic. They would get in the plastic? I would wake up doing this. It'd be roaches on my face. It was infested. And I used to be like, <laughs> my, my oh, wife and then, my girlfriend and then wife now used to laugh at me because I would, she would open up the door, come home from work, and I'd just be spraying. I'd open up the cabinet. She'd be like, what you doing, B? I'd be like, this is war. And I'd be spraying roaches, spraying oh, roaches because no. it was just roaches all over the place. And I was like, yo. I got to find a house. I got to get out of here because mm-hmm. there's just too many roaches. I, I, I'm i going crazy, right? So I go to the neighborhood real estate place and I got $4,200. Mm-hmm. I got $4,200 after hustling, rapping, overseas, doing all these great, great things, MTV, BT. I'm like 24, mm-hmm. 24 years old. Yeah. I go there and I'm like, yo, I got 4,200. My wife had, cause I didn't even tell my wife about this money. Cause that was one of my things I did. Mm-hmm. I could have some money, but I'm not going to tell you all the money. Cause yeah. I might mess it up. And then you're going to say, what happened to that money? What happened to your money? So, yeah. you know, I, I did that dance already. So I had a little bit of money on stash and the guy was like, he gave us a small price for the house. And my wife said, I got a little bit of money on stash too. Cause birds were a feather flock mm-hmm. together. She know my style. And she'd be like, I know he got a little bit of money, mm-hmm. but anyway, so we put our little bit of money together, which was like less than $6,000, right? All around that. Mm-hmm. We got a house for 11500 because it was a, a speakeasy in the neighborhood. Now, I'm from the ghetto. Mm-hmm. And the houses in my neighborhood were going for like $35,000. Wow. Right? So I'm from the ghetto ghetto. All right? So the lady, this lady, it was a man and a woman. The woman was making her husband sell the house because it was a speakeasy that he... What's a speakeasy? That's an illegal place where you can drink at. So it's an after hour. So after the clubs close, you can go ahead and knock on the door, knock, knock, knock. Yo, I need, you know, some this and that and Mm -hmm. the other. You go in there, you sit down, you be drinking, and people be in there drinking all night long and whatever else goes on on there, right? So it was a speakeasy or after hour. And the wife was making the husband... Oh, he's selling this house Mm -hmm. because... They didn't live in North Philadelphia either. They lived somewhere else. It was a problem for their relationship. So I wound up getting this house for $11,500. Wow. 
no mortgage, straight cash. Mm -hmm. She was like, give us a, your down payment. Oh, that's crazy. And give me $250 a month. And he was like, baby, I, you know, my grandmother gave me this house. Oh, you selling this house because I'm looking for you on the weekends and mm -hmm. you're down here doing God knows what. So that was our first deal, right? So I got that house for $11,500, right? It was $250 a month. We only owe like six dollars $5,000. We paid the house off in like a year and a half or something like that. My buddy, California Mike, his older brother, uh, Tone, had real estate. And he used to always talk about his brother Tone. My brother Tone, my brother Tone, my brother Tone, real estate. I found out it was a thing called equity. Mm -hmm. And I had a house that was paid off. The houses are going for 35 grand. I only paid 11,000 for it. Maybe I can get some money out of this. I, I still got a hustler's mentality. So I go to the bank. They give me uh, $32,000 for the house equity, right? Mm -hmm. I go to the auction. I buy a house from the auction for $8,000, right? I get another 32 for that house, right? So now I'm sitting on money. I put a tenant in that house to pay off the, it was like $285 for a mm -hmm. month for the 32,000 I had took out. Boom, I put a tenant in that. Now I'm like, yo, I'm rolling. Uh, the neighbor across the street, he's renting that house. And like I said, I'm from the ghetto ghetto. I guess he, they turned the house to a crack house, or whatever. He was like, man, I hate this house. And I'm looking out the window at him and he's mm -hmm. talking about how much he hates the house. I talked to him, he said, man, you got six grand. I'll give you this house. You give me six grand cash. Boom. I got six grand. Baby, mm -hmm. bring six grand home. I do my due diligence. There's no liens or nothing on the property because um, I get a title title search and title insurance. Mm -hmm. Give me six grand. Boom. Done deal. My boy is a dope boy on the corner. I turn around and flip that to him just on the strength. Give me 12 grand. Double mm -hmm. my money, right? My other buddy, he's a hustler, right? He shows me a house. He knows I'm getting real estate in the neighborhood. Yo, staff, I want to show you what I got. He takes me to the house. Nice house. Reminds me of my grandmom's house. Mm -hmm. It's still in North Philly. I'm in the rough, rough part of North Philly. I'm on Cumberland Street. Mm -hmm. This house is off of Diamond Street, which is where my grandmom lives at, right? Better house, four bedrooms. I live in a three-bedroom, about 900 square feet. This is a four-bedroom, like 1,300 square feet. Still a hood, bigger house, more space. Mm -hmm. He tells me, um, yo, stop. I just bought this house for five grand. Now, I know he's a hustler. Hustlers always want to double their money. So I look at him. I say, yo, man, I give you 10 grand for this house right now. He looked at me like, stop. You serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm serious, man. You want to sell this house? I give you 10 grand for this house right now. What year is this? That this is the 90s. This is the 90s. That's crazy. This is the 90s. To think about. So he's like, um, all right, then boom. So I get a title insurance on it. I get title insurance on mm -hmm. that property. No liens or encumbrances. Boom. Two weeks later, I give him his 10 grand. Bam. This house is a little bit more expensive. Fifty, I get 52 grand back on this one, right? Mm -hmm. Off of this one, I uh, buy a huge three-story building. I buy this huge three-story building. It was an abandoned building. I buy it for dirt cheap. I mean, there's no windows. Mm -hmm. it's, it's messed up. I buy it for dirt cheap, $16,000, right? I put a Dominican store in the bottom floor, right? Mm -hmm. They paying me $1,000 a month. I'm getting rent from the house that I first had. I'm getting rent from the house I got from the auction. I got this house. The guy down the street. The uh, Dominican store. Mm -hmm. I'm getting a G from them. And again, my ego shows up again. I'm out of control. So what brought me to recovery to wrap this up? I wound up buying five houses. And I'm getting rent from all these houses. I'm ghetto balling, mm -hmm. right? I'm ghetto rich. I always got 30, 50 grand in the bank mm -hmm. all the time. I get higher how I want. I get home when I want. I crash a car. I get another car. I'm ghetto rich. Mm -hmm. A used car, not brand new yeah. Mercedes Benz or nothing like that. But I'm ghetto rich, right? People in the neighborhood are saying, yo, uh, you got a house I can rent from? Yeah, I can put you in the house. Mm -hmm. I'm the man. 
My ego's out of control. It shows up like when I was rapping. I get introduced to syrup. It's From coming out of the 90s into the 2000s. Mm -hmm. This is all early 2000s when I'm buying the real estate. Because I remember Lil Wayne coming out and the syrup and all that stuff mm -hmm. like that. Syrup is popping. I'm drinking syrup. I'm, I'm introduced to Percocets. Mm -hmm. Now I'm drinking syrup and Percocets because the cocaine, you know, that make me geek out. I'm bugging. I don't want nobody yeah. to see me. I'm sweating. I'm bugging. You know what I mean? I'm spending money left and right. So, so I'm like, syrup Yo. is cool. Yeah, but syrup, that's mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's smooth, right? Yeah. So now I'm drinking syrup. I'm laid back. I get into the Percocets. After the Percocets, I get into the Zannies. Yo, I start drinking so much syrup and taking so many Percocets and taking so many Zannies. Now I'm having seizures. Now I'm not. And now what people are saying, damn, is he on heroin? Because mm -hmm. It's pretty damn near the same thing. I'm nodding. I'm in the crap game. I'm shooting and gambling. And I, yo, what's your bet? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you won. Pick up your money. Things like that. I start getting really, really bad on the syrup and perks and pills, man. I remember one time I had all my jewelry on. I nodded out. In the, I'm in the ghetto still. At the dice game, I wake up. I don't have no jewelry on. They done peeled me for everything. Wow. Right? So it's getting bad. And that's the things that start bringing me to recovery because now... I'm not paying my bills on time mm -hmm. because, you know, I got home equity loans on those properties. So you still owe a, a little note on that, yeah. right? I put tenants in all those houses to pay the rent. I mean, to pay the mortgage. I would get the, the lump money and I would put them in the house to pay off the loan. Mm -hmm. Now I'm spending the lump money I am, and I'm spending the rent money mm -hmm. and I'm not paying the damn uh, the bills. The bills. Yeah. Lose one house, lose another house. I put a friend in the house when I'm in this decline and i say yo this house is a little mortgage on this house for 250 dollars a month man just pay it just stay here and pay it because i'm not living in that house he says okay he don't pay the damn 250 dollars a month for a year and i'm not a businessman anymore i'm just a, a junkie a mm -hmm. high class fly ass junkie right mm -hmm. i'm not reading the mail i get some mail and it says yo this mortgage ain't been paid for a year i go to him i say yo you ain't paid 250 for a year he tell me all these stories, how time's rough. and I'm like, you live here by yourself. You could have rented the back room yeah, for $250 you, a yeah, month, exactly. right? Welcome to the Genesis House powered by the United Recovery Project. Located in sunny South Florida, we offer drug and alcohol addiction treatment as well as a major focus on dual diagnosis. Our addiction therapy programs include behavioral therapy, 12-step facilitation, psychotherapy, life skills training, and more. At our facility, you can expect a low client-to-staff ratio, daily group therapy, weekly one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions, and luxury amenities such as volleyball, basketball, pool, chiropractor, personal trainer, yoga, massage therapy, and more. Contact the United Recovery Project today and let's create a better tomorrow. So I wound up short selling that house. I'm losing houses left and right. Bro, I lost every house I had. I didn't have no houses. I had five houses. I have no houses. I have nothing. I'm down on myself. I'm thinking to myself like, damn, I was buying these houses because my father didn't leave me nothing when he mm -hmm. passed away. I said, well, when I pass away, at least I'm going to have these houses. Mm -hmm. That was my one of my things yeah. as being, a you know, getting this real estate. Like, yo, I'm going to have something to leave my kids and this mm -hmm. and the other. I'm going to teach them the real estate game, this and the other. But I just, I just fucked it up. Now I'm really big into my woe is me bag. I done fucked up my rap career. 
I done fucked up my real estate career. All I got right now is these is these drugs. And I'm going heavy on the drugs, man. Mm-hmm. I'm going heavy. You know, I'm waking up in places. You know, we, I'm just waking up places like, damn, where the fuck am I at? How I get here? Me and my wife rented a house somewhere else because I don't have no real estate no more. So now we're renters, right? And my wife's yelling at me. I'm on the couch. I wake up on the couch. And she's yelling at me and yelling at me. And I'm like, what's up? What's going on? And she's like, you, you effing up. And, you know, I'm tired of your stuff. And, you know, and now you're coming home from the hospital. And, you know, you're, you're killing yourself. And I'm like, yo, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I wasn't at no fucking hospital. And she says, what's that on your wrist? Mm. I look down on my wrist. I got an emergency room band on my wrist. You know how you go to the emergency room yeah, and you put the plastic yeah, yeah. thing around your wrist? And I'm like, oh, shit. Was that shit. the Xanax? It was everything. Yeah. I'm like, oh, shit. And it says, like, the name of the hospital yeah, and the time I was there and all yeah. that's my name. I'm like, oh, shit. And while I was on the couch, like I, thought, I thought I had a dream. Mm-hmm. I thought I had a dream of me in an emergency room saying, get the fuck off of me, ripping cords and shit out of me. Get the fuck off of me. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, damn. That really happened. That wasn't a dream. That was really me. So now I am, like, blackout getting high and getting home and I don't know how I get high and I'm having flashbacks of that night on the bus driver saying, hey, wake up, get off the, you know, it's just stop. I'm mm-hmm. getting flashes of that now. Like, damn, I got, oh, that's how I got home. That's how I got to the couch. That was really me. So now that's starting to happen a lot. My kids, they hear a thud, boom, on the bathroom floor. They come in the bathroom. I'm on the floor having a seizure. Mm. I come out the seizure. My daughter screams, daddy, we thought you were going to die. And I'm looking up, and they're all crying over top of me. And I'm like, yo, I'm fucking up. I'm like, maybe I need some help. All that time through all those years? Did you try to get help multiple times, or was this the first time? I've never tried to get help. Never. Wow. Never. I never, you ever tried to get help. You didn't even know about meetings or anything like that? Speaking of meetings, uh-huh. I knew about meetings. Okay. Because my father-in-law belonged to a fellowship. Mm-hmm. And my wife wouldn't leave me. So he was like, man, I hate your guts. My daughter won't leave you. <laughs> Motherfucker, you coming to a meeting. And he took you to one. And he took me to a meeting. What was it like? It was cool. Okay. But I wasn't ready for it. You were like, this is cool for you. Yo, I yeah. raised my hand in the meeting, and I start telling them, yo, what's wrong with smoking weed? I'm going to smoke weed. I'm in the meeting. I got mm-hmm. balls, right? They mm-hmm. looking at me like, keep coming back, buddy. You yeah. ain't ready. Because I'm mm-hmm. talking about, man, you know, I got to stop doing this and doing that. But I'm going to smoke weed. Nobody even asked me this. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to raise my hand and just be defiant to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, y'all got the problem. I ain't got no problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to smoke weed. I'm going to drink a beer when I want to because I deserve a beer mm-hmm. on a hot day after work. And, you know, I'm just talking stuff. And I bet you I can just imagine what people thinking, like, this kid ain't ready. Yeah. You know, so I never got, I never attempted to get help. Mm-hmm. I was familiar with the rooms, but at that time when I start thinking like I got a problem, mm-hmm. I started going to meetings, but I was so addicted that I had to have something in my system to, to even make it to the meeting. Because yeah. by this point, I wasn't getting high just to have fun. Mm-hmm. I was getting high to, to survive. Mm-hmm. So URP is your first treatment center? URP is my first treatment center. Wow. What was that process like? Like, Because, you know, I didn't go to... Tr- treatment out of state or anything or go to like you know a real treatment center when i got clean so like you know sometimes i can't imagine that all these people get on airplanes and just fly and go to like some random treatment center they never heard of well for me like how skeptical were you because like in my mind i'm like dude i'm such a skeptical person i know most addicts are that it just seems so insane right 
Well, by this time I was defeated. Yeah, I mean, I guess there you so go. So that's you know, but they talk about the I gift guess a, of pla- a plane to Florida doesn't sound too bad, right? Well, I had that gift of desperation. Mm-hmm. I was defeated, man. Like, yo, I actually was so beat up by the drugs. I asked my mom and my wife to take care of everything, mm-hmm. and I just sat on the edge of the bed, and they were just calling places. And my mom and my wife, they're really like they're business people. And they're doing their due diligence, and they're like they're calling places, and they're they're looking at the um, reviews, reviews, and everything. And they're like, oh no, that's not for you. And they're reading news articles. One of the places down here was pimping out the girls and having, yeah, it was all kinds. Of, and they they on it like, no, not that place, not this place, not this place. They found URP. I didn't find URP. My mother and my wife found URP. So when they said they looked at me and said, Brian, you can be on a plane tomorrow. You want to go tomorrow, right? I'm like, yeah, I want to go tomorrow. Let's have it. Mm-hmm. You know, but when I got here, I was still defiant. Mm-hmm. I was still on some bullshit. Yeah. Tell me about like your treatment process. I bucked the system as much as I could. Mm-hmm. They would tell me, you know, rules about anything. I was just, no, I'm not doing that. I can do it this way. Or I try to talk my way or negotiate something mm-hmm. or, you know what I'm saying? Or it was like, it still was like, I can get, I get money. I'm a hustler. See, you let yourself do this and get that far, but see, I know how to, I was, I was comparing myself. I was on some, like, I just wasn't ready. I knew I wanted help, but Mm -hmm. when the help was offered to me, I wanted to take the help the way I wanted to take it. Mm -hmm. The URP would lend out the hand. Okay. We need you to do these five things. Out of these five things, I'll do that. Oh, I'll do that because I know I can't do that no more. Mm -hmm. And I'll do that, but I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to do that too. Mm -hmm. Because, see, I ain't got a problem with this and that. I got a problem with this and that. You see what I'm saying? What were some of your aha moments or revelations while, like, at your first 30 days at United Recovery Project? Well, I came to URP two times. Mm -hmm. The first time I came, I didn't have any aha moments. Just whatever. I had it in my mind what I was going to do. So the first time you went to treatment, did you have it in your mind made up that when I leave here, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and no one's changing my mind? I sure did. And you knew you were going to drink again? I did. I, dr- I drank when I got to the weed. airport. As soon as they <laughs> dropped me the off, as soon as they dropped me uh-huh. off, like, bye. I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. thank you for the treatment. I went right to the bar and got a beer. Yeah. And got on the airplane. You know what's so crazy is that we've had clients in there and we'll tell them, like, you probably won't even make it at the airport. And they're like, y'all crazy. And it's a sure thing. I didn't make it at the yeah. airport. Wow. I drank as soon as I got. But they call it a, um, I already oh. had my mind made up when I got a reservation. There, a reservation. I had a yeah. reservation through the whole thing. Yeah. I had a little bit of money at the, at the house. Mm-hmm. Right? About 20 grand. Let me ask you. So when you're in treatment and you mm-hmm. hear about everyone else's story, you're in there thinking, like, I ain't like these people. I got this 20 grand. I would imagine so. That's, exact, yeah. that's exactly what I'm thinking. Everyone's like, oh, I need to get clean because this and that. And and you're thinking, like, well, I, I don't need to do all this because I have X, Y, and Z laid up for me. Yeah. I don't need all that. You that's know? right. And I, I'm thinking, like, I'm thinking of a business plan. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take that 20 grand. I'm going to get back in the real estate game. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to do that. If I'm walking right. around the treatment center and someone's asking me like a business question, I'm like, you're the first motherfucker to relapse. Yeah. Because it's like, you could ask me anything. Mm-hmm. How to stay clean. What's the principle behind step two? How did you really, you know, come to accept that you can't drink? And you're going to ask me about how to make money. Mm-hmm. It's like your mind is on the, the wrong thing. And that's how you know? I was the first time I came down. My sponsor used to tell me like, bro, you're about to fight Mike Tyson. Tyson. Like, it's going to happen. You're fighting Mike Tyson. Your fight is coming up. You don't know when. If you ain't asking people how to box, you're going to lose. Yeah. You know? And I lost. Yeah. I lost. I wound up going home and tearing through that money. 
Mm-hmm. No business plan. I had a business plan. <laughs> yeah. But, but no, you know, a plan, yeah. you got to initiate it. Mm-hmm. Right? One thing I did learn, I did have an aha mm-hmm. moment. Anything you put before your recovery, going to lose. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have that aha moment until I was losing it. And then you started But I heard it, it back when yeah. I was in recovery. Yeah, those are the seeds we plant. Yeah. And it's like, damn. Did it fuck up your high? Like, did you start to... I felt guilty. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting high guilty. Yeah. I'm looking in the mirror, driving down to the neighborhood, like, damn, you're about to really do this again? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you're about to do this again. And I'm like, damn, I'm about to do this again. Yeah, give me one. Yeah, I'm doing it again. Mm-hmm. Let me go back and get some more. The awareness. Oh, and yeah, I'm aware. It's like, ah, oh, it's like, ah. Oh. And I'm I'm upset with myself while I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm getting... You can't enjoy it no more. You can't enjoy it, man. I was doing so many pills, man, that uh, somebody gave me a bundle of um something to sell and i wound up doing one of them mm-hmm. and i was sober and i told my homie i was like yo i gave him the ten dollars right boom i put it in mm-hmm. i gave him the whole thing back and i was like yo i gave it to somebody they said they ain't like it mm-hmm. and he looked at me he's like they ain't like it stop everybody in the neighborhood loved this mm-hmm. and i was like i am fucked up i'm doing so many pills that the stuff that's the good stuff it's not even getting me yeah. high and I couldn't even get high with the pills no more. If it took me this amount, amount to get high, now it takes me this amount to get almost where I used to Normal. get. Normal. When you cross that line of like getting high is no longer getting high, it's just becoming not suicidal. It's like when I wasn't using, mm-hmm. I was suicidal. And then when I was high, I just maybe wasn't as suicidal. or su- And it's like I'm not even getting to a good feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting to a bearable feeling. Right. And not using its own bearable. Yeah. And when I use, I'm just bearable. That's crazy. And it's like, that's when you're like, yo, the drugs ain't working. It ain't working. And that's crazy when they don't work no more because it's like, <laughs> I'm getting more and more and more. And, you know, I'm just driving and just popping and popping yeah. and popping and popping. It ain't getting me where I want to be. And I'm just spending money. Mm-hmm. You know? And I understand why people go from one thing to the next because this right here, cost money and then you could just get the same feeling for 10 bucks yeah right but i've been through the same thing when i was on cocaine mm-hmm. i went to the next level mm-hmm. right and i was like okay i'm just gonna stay here <laughs> right because i don't want to i don't want to start putting <laughs> stuff in my veins and all so i'm just gonna stay here but i'm spending every bit of all the money i got yeah. spending my money i'm spending my wife's money i'm calling my mom i'm spending her money I'm calling my grandma mm-hmm. i'm spending her money you dig what i'm saying and i'm still not getting where i want to be like, a lot of times people ask me, like, oh, I can't imagine getting clean so young. But it's like, I crossed that line, and I already was portrayed as this. So there's a point where you're using, where using drugs is cool, and then there becomes that line that you cross where it's now embarrassing and humiliating. And, like, mm-hmm. what I'm doing is embarrassing, and I'm humiliating myself. And I it's I know it's embarrassing. I know it's embarrassing to ask for money because people know I'm going to use drugs. People are already looking at me saying, like, bro, are you high again? I'm already, like ruining the party and ruining the family get together and fucking up Christmas. I'm already like the laughing stock of, of the neighborhood and and look down on. So it's like once you're already to that level, as addicts, we think that we're gonna get back to this cool place where like using's cool and it just Yeah. It just doesn't happen. It didn't happen. No. It was a decision I had to make. Either I was gonna go deeper into this rabbit hole mm-hmm. or I was gonna ask for help. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm coming back. And that's when you came back to URP? And that's when I came back. And what was it like this next time around? It was rougher. For mm-hmm. me, it was rougher. But it was rougher as far as my detox. So let me ask you something. So a lot of people who have been to treatment don't want to go again, and their response is like, I've already been, and it didn't work. 
And like I always tell people, like that's like saying you went to the gym and it didn't work. You know what I mean? It's like this time we're gonna go and we're actually gonna do the work. You know? Yeah. And that's that's what I did. I said, B, when you get down here this time, just shut up and just listen. The way I listen and the way I follow suggestions were way easier. My detox, however, was really rough because I just put all that little bit of change I had saved up, I put it straight in my body. Mm-hmm. And over the course of two, two three months, mm-hmm. I put all that in my body in over two months, two, three months, because I just came back 90 days later. And all that money I said I had, I spent it all. Mm-hmm. I came down with 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. I spent it all. I came down. And with, when you come back to treatment, you can't really play the same game of like, oh, I got it all together. Because nah. it's like, motherfucker, you back here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody in the staff, everybody showed me love. Nobody was like, ah, I'm offering you back again. They was like, hey, we're happy to see you. Because what I didn't know mm-hmm. that I know now, some people don't get to come back. Yeah, man. And even with like the insurance stuff, it's like, man, we have people who come around. They act like, you know, they don't really need to be here. And then two months later, they're begging us to come back. We call their insurance company. The insurance like, nah, they were just there. They ain't getting covered again, you know? So it's like a lot of people think that just because you're able to go once or twice or three times that your insurance is just going to keep letting you go. But at some point, the care managers at the insurance company is like, nah, like this person can't just keep keep going if they ain't going to change. Yeah. Luckily for me, that wasn't my, you know, my mm-hmm. experience. I was able to come 90 days later, mm-hmm. busted and disgusted, tail between my legs. My detox was crazy. Mm. It was the first time I ever lost touch with reality. Mm. And detox, I lost my mind. I came out of the room. It, it wasn't the first day. It was like the second day or so. I came out of the room and I was saying, I'm confused. I'm confused. They said, Brian, what's wrong with you? They said, well, what are you confused about? I said, I can't make weight. They said, what? Hmm. I said, I can't make weight. I thought it was in a boxing match. Hmm. I said, I can't make weight. And my brain, my, my mind wanted to say something else, but I was stuck. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm confused. Then I just start sweating. <sighs> right? They put towels all over me. Then I thought I was having a heart attack. The ambulance had to come to the detox and pick me up and take me out on, on a mm-hmm. gurney. Right? On one of them. And put me in the thing. Everybody in the detox looking at me, and I'm strapped yeah. to the thing. I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack. I'm sweating. I'm mm-hmm. confused. I'm out of my mind. I have a conversation with my grandmother in the front of the parking lot, telling her, yeah, Grandma, I'm going to get myself together this time. Mm-hmm. She's done passed away, and I'm talking to an imaginary spirit of her, wow. right? I, and, and I go to the hospital. They say, yo, your heart's fine. You're good, right? I, I sweat for three months straight. My bones ache for three months straight, three through detox and when I get to the center. Mm-hmm. IOP and all that, I'm sweating for months. Mm-hmm. My bones are aching for months. This trip of, of getting this stuff out of my system was hell. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I, I had to go through the hell to get to the exit. This time I came through, it was rough, man. Mm-hmm. My body was like, yo, you literally forced everything in your, trying to do it your way. Yeah. I turned into an alcoholic because I said, oh, I ain't going to mess with the, the Perk 30s and all this. Mm-hmm. I ain't going to mess with none of that anymore. So now I'm drinking like a crazy man, right? Which is the worst detox from anything. I'm drinking stupid. I'm mm-hmm. drinking so much that when my wife comes home, I hide the beer cans and hide the bottles and hide to this. And I might have one beer in my hand. Like, hey, how you doing? But I done dr- drunk a 12-pack and drank a half a bottle of vodka. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And then when it got to the point where I was drinking so much, it clicked like, B, why don't you just go what you <laughs> get what you want? Mm-hmm. 
because you're vomiting and everything like that and doing all, you know what you like and it ain't going to make you feel like this and you only need a couple of, I, I, you know, I rationalized yep. myself into getting high again, right? And when I came down here, like I just told you my experience in detox, by the time I got out of detox, I said, you know what, B, we're going to really do this and we're going to put the work in this time. I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. I don't know nothing no more. I'm going to follow your suggestions. They tell me to go to a meeting, I go to a meeting. They tell me to go pray, I go pray. Whatever they told me to do, I did it. They say, get a sponsor, I get a sponsor. They tell me, don't get that sponsor because it heard something about you, get mm -hmm. another sponsor. I can't, you can't be my sponsor no more. Mm -hmm. I get another sponsor. Everything they told me to do, I did it. And that's how I was, I was able to accumulate the clean time I have today by shutting up and listening to what people who have better experience in winning in this than mm -hmm. I have. And that's how I have got to this point right now. Mm -hmm. And man, like, you know, there's a principle that's not really talked about. It's like obedience. Because it's like, as addicts, we're so rebellious. Like, even in our, like, meetings, we talk about suggestions and stuff like that. But, dude, my sponsor was so tough on me. So tough on me. He wasn't telling, he wasn't suggesting. He's like, yo, if you don't do this, you're wasting good get high time. Mm. You know what I mean? He would say, bro, if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to get the same thing that I got. But also, if you don't do the same thing, you're going to get what everyone else got. So he would tell me, like, bro, we bury kids like you every day. And just tell me, like, bro, like, you think you're going to make it? Like, bro, most people don't. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of problems that people take is that they they don't gauge the enemy as strong as it as it is. They kind of take it lightly, you know? And it's like, you know, when you're preparing for a boxing fight or you're preparing for anything, it's like when you take it lightly, you don't do the work to prepare. It's like, dude, that's when you lose. But it's like when you prepare for the storm, you make it through the storm. You know, and it's a lot of times people are on that pink cloud. They think the storm's not coming. You know, and I always tell people, like, dude, the storm's always coming. It's storm's always, always coming. And it's like, you know, I talk to people all the time. And it's like when people don't go to meetings, n like nothing really bad happens. You've been clean for years. You stop going to meetings. But I always say it's like driving without insurance. And I know for me, like the one day I don't have insurance, I get, you know, rear-ended. So it's like I want to be insured. I want to be able to, to have that peace in my life. And at the end of the day, it's like, I'm so grateful for the program. I want to carry the message. So it's not just about me either today because I wouldn't be here if someone else didn't live that way. What are some things like in your first 90 days, like some revelations you had or like aha moments you did have? Let's see, my first 90 days. How did days. you get over like not drinking? How did I get over it? Or like just come to terms with, because that's a lot of people's problem is like, how am I not going to drink and smoke weed? I just gave up on the shit, man. It wasn't working, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have done it, done it, right? So it's like, I was just really ready to accept a new way of life. Mm. Really, really, that's really what it came down to. I, when the second time I came down here, I was really ready to accept a different way of life. Mm -hmm. I saw people like you who are doing better in recovery. And I wanted to, I wanted to have that. I've always wanted to have that. Mm -hmm. Yo, I used to hate saying I wasn't going to do it no more and, and then do it, it again. Yep. I used to hate that, man. Yeah, because we're so strong-minded at anything else we do, but this one thing mm -hmm. we just can't do. It's like, you know, we could put our minds to business, a rap career, relationships, anything we do. We put our minds to it, we could do it. But when we say we're not going to use again, as strong-willed as we are, and we use again, we're just like, why is this not working here, you know? Exactly, exactly that. And so if I can see people who's going through the same thing, addiction, mm -hmm. And 
their addiction can be arrested, right? Like I was reading something that says, however, it tells her all this stuff, the addiction, mm-hmm. addiction, 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 all these negatives. And then it says, however, it can be arrested. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for the solution. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So when I came down the second time, I was looking for the solution because I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, um, you know, I'm writing a book too. And like in that book is like, you know, for me, like one of my biggest aha moments was when someone broke down step one to me and separated myself from the disease. So prior to this, if I said I didn't feel like using and then I would go use, I would just see it as I changed my mind. Well, I didn't feel like using, you know, now I do feel like using, so I'm going to go use. And then I would feel conflicted because I wanted to stay clean, but I wanted to use too. So which one was it? Well, on a good day, I feel like staying clean. On a bad day, I feel like using. And sometimes that flips around and it's like I just was confused. That like, Do I want to stay clean? Do I want to use? And when someone said that um, the disease wants you to get high and Brian wants to stay clean and I have that separation and I started to think about all the things the disease of addiction robbed from me. And someone would tell me like, dude, I don't think you do want to use. I think Brian wants to stay clean. I think the disease is trying to get you to use. Mm-hmm. So then when I would feel like using... I was finally able to shift and be like, nah, that's not me. That's the disease. And when I had that first paradigm shift, Mm -hmm. I was able to have a common enemy that was the disease. And I was able to separate my thoughts. So when I do have thoughts about using, I'm able to be like, nah, that's the disease trying to get at me. Yeah. I know what I want, and I, and that's why we do God's will and self-will. Like, dude, you know, my God's will is to stay clean, have success, be happy love people, be kind to others, and not use. And, you know, the other will, the bad will, self-will, whatever you want to call it, wants instant gratification. Mm -hmm. That was my big shift when I first got clean was when I started to realize that I'm not the disease, Yeah, you know? Yeah. I always knew I was a good person, man. I just had a problem, Mm -hmm. you know? I knew I was a a good person. It's just like I just couldn't shake this thing, Mm -hmm. you know? And then... I didn't. I wasn't willing to accept help. I was stubborn. I wanted yeah. to do it all my way. So when I really came to grips with, I can't fix myself. I need help, Surrender. and I accepted the help. Mm-hmm. That's when things started to turn around in my life. So uh, what's the last? You've been clean two years now. Three years. Three years. Yeah, yeah. three years and some Congrats. change. That's amazing. Yeah. That's crazy how time yeah. flies. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. All right, so you've been clean three years. What was those three years look like for you? The three years have been absolutely incredible. So, okay, these are the things that that has happened for me. I I bought a new car, right? I wrote a book, I built a website, and I bought a house Mm. over these last three years. You know, it's so funny, so when they told me that you bought a house, I was like, that's the real estate guy. (laughs) (laughs) Because I remember you telling me you did real estate. Yeah, but what's funny is that every time I got something new, I would ask God, right? I said, God, I'm going to get this car. Please don't let this car go to my head. Mm-hmm. I don't want no ego. I want a nice car, mm-hmm. but don't let me turn into an asshole because I got a nice car. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Don't let me have an ego because the ego was the problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and it's not like the material things is what it does to you spiritually after you've gotten it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like there's certain things that I've learned when I got clean. Like someone would say, like, like just because I'm better off doesn't mean I'm better than Right. You know, and like on my mirror and my in my bathroom, I have uh, written down on my mirror, um, you know, I pray that like my desire for more doesn't rob me from the gratitude, the things that I have, mm-hmm. because 
That to me is the hardest thing for an ambitious man. Because someone who's ambitious, they're always wanting more. But when you allow that desire for more to rob you from enjoying what you already have, mm -hmm. it's almost like a curse because you can't even enjoy your life because you're constantly comparing, you're constantly thinking about the next thing. But at the same time, you can't ever progress if you're not looking at the horizon and accomplishing more. I think I had like four or five years of not knowing which way to go. Eventually, I got to this point where I started to realize that it's like a balance, that there has to be a drive for more, but I need to have more gratitude of the things that I have. Right. And you know, one of the most important things that I got in these three years of some change, the respect and admiration of my family again, the bond that I have rebuilt with my wife and my children, the ability to show my kids that dad, anybody can go through problems mm -hmm. and come out on the other side stronger. So those are some of the most important things that I gain. And then also the respect I have gained for myself. Mm -hmm. I actually caught myself in the mirror while um, living at the grad house, hardly not recognizing myself. I walked past the mirror, I was like, oh, snap, mm -hmm. that's you. Damn, B, you looking good. Mm -hmm. And I smiled at myself because it was a long time in the past when I didn't even want to look in the mirror. Yeah. So those are some of the most valuable things that I have mm -hmm. gained in my recovery uh, thus far. Yeah, I have a gratitude list that I keep in my wallet. And one of the main things that I could look myself in the mirror, I remember I used to know where all the mirrors were and, and purposely avoid them at school, at my house. I remember getting like ready in the morning. I would have like the lights off because like I just mm. couldn't look at myself. Like I hated seeing myself. And then when I was out places, sometimes I would be in a good mood. And as soon as I would catch my reflection, it would like ruin my day. There's just no price you can put for loving yourself. It's like the like, dude, you can have all the money in the world. All like if you don't love yourself, like yeah. that's that's like the core of your existence. Right. You know, when you have one of something, you have to love it. You know what I mean? Like you ain't gonna get another one. Oh, yeah. So it's like there's so many things in life that we can easily trade out. You know, even like your body, but like you yourself, mm -hmm. like like who you are, it's never gonna change. Like your life, you're only gonna get one life, you know? And like even though your body might change, like you need to love yourself where you're at because it's the only thing you're gonna have ever. Yeah. I wanna do something, all right? Yeah. All right. I got this song, all right? You're going to rap for us? Yeah. All right, let's hear it. I was on dope, now I'm loving me. Look how fly, nigga, look when a nigga in recovery. I made the worst part of me disappear like Houdini, I'm cold. And I came back smelling like a rose. I was on dope, now I'm loving me. Look how fly, nigga, look when a nigga in recovery. I made the worst part of me disappear like Houdini, I'm cold. And I came back smelling like a rose. I ain't mad with nobody down the way. But one summer I spent more than 10K down 17th and J. I was fumbling the bag, fucking up the rent money in the mortgage. On top of that, Jimmy Stoffer snorted. Fly as a rich nigga in the big city of Philly. To make it worse, a nigga tried to kill me. I was hooked on phonics, head pounding like Mantronics, getting higher than an airplane pilot. I was on dope, now I'm loving me. Look how fly, nigga, look, want a nigga in recovery. I made the worst part of me disappear like Houdini, I'm cold. And I came back smelling like a rose. Mm, bars. There you go. Thank you, bro. I appreciate that. You're uh, welcome. Tell me about your, your uh, clothing company. All right. So my clothing camp company is uh, Sobriety is Gangsta. That's the name of my clothing. Mm -hmm. Sobriety is Gangsta. I have clothing, uh, merch, 
even blankets. Mm -hmm. um, sobriety is gangster and clean is gangster because mm -hmm. there's different fellowships mm -hmm. out here, right? So um, it's available at baldbossmedia.com forward slash shop. That's bald like my head, mm -hmm. boss like what I am, uh, media, baldbossmedia.com at forward slash shop. And I made the um, sobriety is gangster and clean is gangster because getting clean was one of the, one of the most gangster things I did mm. in my life. Yeah. To look my my problem in the eye and 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 have accountability mm -hmm. for it and just come out on the other side um, with more strength and more wisdom to me is gangster mm -hmm. and nothing to be like gangster like doing harm to somebody but it's more of like the hip hop thing like that's gangster yeah so sobriety is gangster yeah that's that's what I'm doing and you know what like uh, like when I was young like I really thought I was like thugged out and all this shit but it's like you know I used to always say like you know getting clean was the most thugged out shit I ever did because it's like man all that stuff that I did to to fit in and stuff was all based on insecurity and trying to you know uh, fit in, fit in mm -hmm. whatever and it's like man recovery is like the only thing that we do as like a real survival it's like we ain't doing this to look good we ain't doing this to be cool like you know or our backs are on the wall it takes a lot of humility to call another man and ask him for help you know it takes a, a real man to admit that they have issues you know to love and to cry and you know, hug people like we do in our fellowship. And like, like to me, like, that's really dope. Like, that's really gangster. Mm -hmm. And it's like in recovery, when I would see people talk about they used to sell dope and were gangsters and all this stuff, and then they got clean. You know, one of my closest friends, uh, you know, Corey, he would be like, man, being there for your kids is gangster. You know, he would say like, man, paying the bills is gangster. You know, being present with your family is gangster, you know, and like stuff like that. And like people in recovery that I would see started to... um sponsor and mentor me and change the way I view men. Because as young adults, the way that I viewed men was like paid in full. You know, I love rap music till today, but a lot of the stuff in rap music, I was taking lyrics and really applying them to my life and thinking that that was like the Bible, you know, and really um, womenizing and like all these things and, and, and wanting to be the man instead of a man. There we go. You That's know what, what I'm I mean? talking about. Trying to be the man and not a man because here I am, the man at all these places, and it's like I got my mom crying at home, mm -hmm. you know. So I needed to prioritize. It feels really good to be clean. It's like the best feeling, man. Like when I see people using, struggling to get clean, mm -hmm. it's a no-brainer for me. It's like, dude, anything you ever dreamed of and wanted, you can get clean. Especially, like, bro, you're a drug addict. You got so much gift and power and resilience and smarts and hustle. Like if you just put the drugs down, worked the steps, got to know yourself, applied some therapy in your life, got some good, strong, positive people in your life, did a gratitude list on a daily basis, six, seven months, psh, you'd skyrocket, you know? And a lot of times people just, they don't have the humility to really ask for help. And everything you said is exactly what I did my second time, man. Mm -hmm. And that's what you just said, man. And wanting to be a man instead of the man, mm -hmm. all that stuff like that. Yeah. I've had all those same thoughts. Yeah. When I was hustling and doing all this, I just wanted to be the man. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, you know, be that peacock and just, you know, you know, strut around and look at me, look at me. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was trying to be the man. Mm -hmm. I was failing as a, a man. Yep. And now that I want to be a man, mm -hmm. the things that I, I'm accumulating provide for myself and my family. It's just a it, it's just a beautiful place that I'm in right now. And I'm still growing. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You know, I go to meetings and people got 30 years and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I know I'm still growing and I know that I have to be grounded, not be a big head about it, not have an ego about what I'm at, but I love the place that I'm at and I'm still going through adversity, mm-hmm. right? I'm going through adversity from some things in my past from when I was using, but I'm happy I'm able to do that clean. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm ha- happy I'm able to do that clean because um, I have a clear vision and strength to go through these problems and live life on life's terms because life is always going to show up there. It's always going to show up, mm-hmm. but now I get to do it clean yes, and sir. I don't have to have a scapegoat. Every time a problem comes up, I got to get a bottle or mm-hmm. drug. Now I can just be an adult about it and think through it, call for help about it, but I don't have to pick up a substance because something has happened in my life. And it's like, dude, I know a lot of people, like, the long run, I used to think people who didn't use were crazy. Like, you don't even drink? Like, it was so crazy to me. And then it was like, okay, well, you're an addict, so you can't drink. But, like, the longer I stay clean, the more and more I run into people who don't use and have no substance abuse history. Being clean and being 100% sober is now becoming like a trend where people are seeing like we don't need to drink. And like all this advertisement we were given as kids and as adults and all this stuff about, you know, drinking or whatever. Man, there's celebrities that own liquor companies that don't drink. Mm. Like I read 50 Cent's book, like bro, (laughs) he owns a liquor company, Mm -hmm. he don't drink. He's like, bro, if I'm drinking, it's probably water. Right. You know, he don't drink, he don't smoke weed. Right. He don't smoke weed. And it's like, you got Future over here rapping about Percocet, Molly Percocet. He don't do no drugs. He don't? (laughs) No. I know that. Future don't do no drugs. Yeah. So it's like, you know, a lot of people are selling something that they don't even get high on themselves. Even the idea of, of using or whatever. I don't look down at people that drink or use even like a little bit, you know? But at the same time, I see such a benefit to it. I couldn't imagine accomplishing one-fifth of the things that I did, even if I could drink on the weekends. It's just it's just uh, such a waste of time and just how I feel. I feel so good clean. It's like the best feeling. Everything I've ever wanted through drugs, I mm-hmm. found thing clean. So, That's hey, nice. I want to thank you for being on the show. I love you, man. Let's uh, do a shout-out for your company again. This is called uh, Clean is Gangster. Clean is Gangster and Sobriety is Gangster. Available at baldbossmedia.com forward slash shop. What's the name of your book? Uh, My book is Money is God. It's my life before I was in recovery. So let's show you everything I did wrong to Mm -hmm. get up to the point where I'm at right now. Are you coming out with a sequel? I'm coming out with another book, but it's about recovery. Okay. So Money is God is how I was living in the hood, Mm -hmm. my life and my friend's life growing up during the 80s and the 90s in North Philadelphia, Money is God, because we thought money was the end-all, be-all to all our problems, Mm -hmm. which we found out was wrong. So that's Money is God. It's more of like a classic gangster book. And it, like I said, it, it tells the life of how I was living in North Philadelphia. That's also available on the same website. And then Sobriety is Gangster is how I'm living now. That's what's up. Thank you, brother. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Have Thank you for one. having me. Thank you. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.